Good morning, church. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Maybe, uh, maybe Advent is new, new to you. Um, Advent is on the church calendar, the Christian calendar, the, the liturgical calendar. Um, it is uh, from a Latin word meaning arrival, the coming. And so it is a time, um, it's the four Sundays prior to Christmas. And it's a time where we as believers, where we set our hearts on the arrival, the coming of, of our Savior. And so just as we just read, um, we, we look back to the people of God who before Jesus came, they had such a longing for the Messiah, for the Savior. And so we look back and we have the same uh, just feelings and set our hearts on that. But we too, we look forward to the second advent, right? The second arrival, the second coming of Jesus, where this time, though, he doesn't come as a baby in a manger. Rather, he comes as the king of kings, and he comes to make all things new and to set all things right. And so um, we pray that this Advent season, church, that we would just slow down in the midst of the hustle and the bustle. I was talking to someone this morning, and they were just telling me how overwhelmed they are by looking at their December calendar. And I pray that we would be a people that, and just in the midst of all of that, that we would slow down, that we wouldn't hurry but that we would set our hearts on Advent, on the arrival, on the coming of Jesus. Um, and so to help you with that, we, we emailed out to you a devotional um, this past Wednesday. It's also in the weekly email as well as the Church Center app. And so we encourage you as families, individuals, whatever, take time. Advent begins today. Take time every day and, and really set your hearts. Use that devotional to set your hearts on, on the second coming of Christ. It's such an important time uh, for us this season. So uh, Acts chapter 4. Um, if you're new to us, this is what we do at the, book, at the Parks Church. We pick a book of the Bible. We work right through it. We are in the book of Acts, and we have uh, entitled this series, um, The Acts of the Holy Spirit. We began this 11 weeks ago, Acts of the Spirit. And what we have clearly seen is we have seen uh, the early church, that they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what we said last week was that the church is not just an organization, but literally the walking incarnation of God's power. That's what we see in the early church. We see these people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we see the church moving forward by the Spirit. And so what we saw in Acts chapter 1 is we saw Jesus ascending to heaven, and he tells his disciples, he says he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would empower them. Acts chapter 2, we find the disciples, they're in the upper room, they're praying, they're seeking God, and, and tongues of fire literally appear above their heads, and they begin speaking in tongues. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We see Peter, he gets up and he preaches the first sermon, boldly proclaiming the gospel, and thousands of people come to faith. Over 3,000 people join the church, and he does it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 3, we see Peter and John, and they're going into the temple, and they come across this lame man who's begging, asking for money, and they go up to him, and they, they heal him. And they make it very clear, it's not by any power of their own, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week, Acts chapter 4, we saw Peter, he goes before the council, and he boldly proclaims the gospel, who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Messiah, and he does it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And today, we continue our study in Acts, the end of Acts chapter 4, the beginning of Acts chapter 5, and we continue to see the power of the Holy Spirit in the early church. And so let's pick up where we left off last week. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, And now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. 
There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as had need. And so we see here Luke is describing this early church, these people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. They are captured, their hearts are captured by the resurrection. And so therefore the response to that is generosity. Because Jesus is alive, because they've just been with him, the response is, man, things of this world don't matter. And so they take all their possessions and they begin selling them so that the money could be distributed for those who are in need. And then he gives an example of this happening, verse 36. It says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, but... But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God." When Ananias heard these words, he fell down. He breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Wow, that's a crazy story, right? Welcome to the Parks Church. Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, you, you have maybe heard this before. Um, it's been said that that there are two reasons, and there's probably many more, but there's two reasons why someone is not a Christian. One, because they've met a Christian, or two, because they've not met a Christian. And that might sound like a contradiction, but we all know it to be true that, that sometimes there are people who profess to be Christians, but the actions of their life do not line up with who Jesus is and the calling of a disciple. And so therefore, sometimes that turns people away. But then there are many people who, who passionately live out the, the call of a disciple and they're, they're gospel-centered and they're on mission in their life and God uses them to bring others to faith. And in our passage today, we have two stories. We kind of see one of each of those. And what we see each story has in common is that each story has a field that is being sold and then the proceeds of the sale are brought to the apostles' feet. But you probably saw there's a very different outcome for each story. See, the first story is a story of a, 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 a Christian man named Barnabas. And I pray that we as a church, that we would have a close look at him and we would see what it looks like to be like Barnabas, someone whose heart is captured by the gospel and therefore led by the Spirit of God. The other story, though, is the story of a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. And it's a terrifying picture of someone who is more motivated by the love and the approval of man than of God. So... We continue our study, Acts of the Holy Spirit. We've been looking at the life of the early church, these people who are marked and they are empowered by the power of God. And so this morning in our text, I believe we learned four things about the Holy Spirit. We see four functions of the Holy Spirit. And the first one is this, the Holy Spirit enables generosity. The Holy Spirit enables generosity. Look again at 
verse 32. It says, And now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Look, if you have kids, one of the first words that our kids learn is mine, right? If you go down to the nursery right now, the Parks Littles, you'll see a bunch of kids sitting on the floor. You'll see a bunch of toys around them. And if you approach one of those kids, they're going to grab that toy and they're going to say, mine, right? In other words, they're going to say, back off. And that is a snapshot of the human heart because the, the natural leaning, the natural inclination of the human heart is not generosity. The, the, the initial bend of the human heart is to hoard is to accumulate, is to pile up things for ourselves, And that's why there's not a TV show called Givers, but there's a TV show called Hoarders, right? Because the human heart, this is what we do. This is what we want to do. We don't desire to give our stuff away, but God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to push on that and wants to say, no, I want to work in your life, that you would have an eternal perspective with your resources, that you would have a loose grip on the things of this earth, that you would be generous, Look what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 10 to his people. He says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which, is I, which I am commanding you today for your good. So God tells his people, Obey me, serve me, and follow me. Obey me, serve me, and follow me. And you would think he would follow that up with a checklist. Okay, here's how you do this. But look at verse 14. God says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. God says, Everything, the heavens and the earth, is mine. Now that might sound like a strange thing. It would be like me going to my kids and waking them up in the morning and saying, Okay, hey, today's going to be a great day. Just obey me, serve me, do what I instruct of you. It's going to be a great day. And they say, Okay, Dad. But then if I say, hey, and by the way, everything that you have, it's mine. So uh, the bed that you just slept in, it's mine. The pillow that you just enjoyed, that's mine. Those Jordans you're wearing, they're mine. Uh, the, the refrigerator that you're going to pull the milk up, it's mine. The whole house is mine. The car, everything's mine. And they would be like, Dad, what's, are you on a power trip? Like what's, what's happening here is God on a power trip. Obey me. Serve me. It's all mine. Here's what we need to see. God is saying to his people, obey me, serve me, follow me. And one of the ways that I need you to do this is by realizing that everything is mine because when you realize that nothing belongs to you and it's all mine, then it's very easy to give away. But when you begin to think that it's all yours and you earn, you've earned it, you deserve it, you're so great, then you're gonna hold tightly to it and it's a trap. It's gonna trap you. See, all throughout the Old Testament, God desires to establish a generous community of people that would take care of each other. But the old community failed. But the new community has a new identity. They have the Holy Spirit. And so we see these people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the byproduct of that is this radical generosity. And it was, uh, in, in, in the book of Acts, it was an all or nothing Christianity. See, what does it require? It requires total surrender. In the book of Acts, it's everything, right? It's not an easy believism. It's not just cultural Christianity. It's not just, hey, I was born in the South, so I'm a Christian, or I live in Texas, so I'm a Christian, or just nominal believism. No, it's total surrender to the Lordship of Christ. It is all that I have for all that you are. 
So look, this morning, we don't need a deep exegetical word study on on the word share. We know what sharing means. If you have kids, you teach your kids to share. But just like it's hard to get your kids to share, it's hard to get adults to share because we too, we want to hold on to our stuff. And this is why we need the Holy Spirit to push back and to work on us. And so we don't need a deep study this morning on what it means to share. See, sometimes I think we take these, these concepts in the Bible and we make them very difficult. And I think we do that because at the end of the day, we just don't want to do them. We want to have a philosophical talk and debate and all this. What's it mean? No, no, no. We don't have an understanding problem. We have an application problem. When the Bible says take care of orphans, it means take care of orphans. When the Bible says take care of widows, it means take care of widows. And when the Bible says to share generously, it means to share generously. But this type of life, it requires time. It requires time with people. It requires sensitivity to others and what's happening in those around us and not being so absorbed with ourself. Again, verse 32, it says, and no one said that any of the things belong to them. So every person in the church, literally every person in the church, viewed every resource that they had as not belonging to themselves, but that God had provided it and it was for his glory. And the result of that was verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. Like, that's an amazing picture. Can you imagine if we lived this out? Can you imagine if the Holy Spirit was so at work in the Parks Church that every single person viewed their resources, viewed their possessions, that God had given it to them and viewed it with an eternal perspective for his glory and for his using? That any time a need would would arise in the church, immediately it would be met. Like, it's an amazing testimony of the church being the church. It's an amazing testimony of the Holy Spirit alive and at work in his people. Over almost a nine-year history of this church, it's been amazing to see glimpses of this. Like, I, this week when I was in this passage, I started just thinking back through how many times this has happened. And like, it's been amazing. And I want to share a lot of these stories, but honestly, I don't want to embarrass anybody. But there are many times over the past nine years where we have seen someone see a need in the church and meet it. Use their resources. God, how can I meet this and make it happen? We've seen someone see a need and grab other people and say, hey, let's pull together our resources. Let's make it happen. We've seen people rally around widows in our church. We've seen people rally around single moms in our church. We've seen people rally around when someone has a medical bill that they can't take care of. We've seen people rally around and knock that thing out. It's amazing. It's a picture of the the Holy Spirit at work. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He enables generosity. Second thing the Holy Spirit we see doing in this passage, the Holy Spirit enables belief. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Look, the gift of grace, the gift to believe and testify that Jesus is Savior is given by the Holy Spirit. So what did the early church believe? They believed that Jesus was Messiah, that he was the Savior, that we are fully satisfied in God through Jesus. This is what they believed, and it was, it was enabled by the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't just the early church sitting around and, and thinking about how they can make themselves better people, how they can clean themselves up, how they can muster up faith. No, the Holy Spirit did this in them. This is what Ephesians 2.8 says. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So our prayer for you today, if you are here and and you've never put your faith and your trust in Christ, our prayer for you is that you wouldn't sit here and just try to figure out a way to make yourself better, 
that you wouldn't sit here and try to figure out how you can clean yourself up, that you wouldn't sit here and just close your eyes and squeeze them as tight as you can and try to muster up faith. Our prayer for you is like Ephesians 1 says, that, that your heart would be enlightened to who Jesus is and what he has done, that your eyes and your ears would be open to the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. So look how this goes with generosity. It says, with great power, great power that the apostles are preaching and they're testifying of the resurrection. And then the result is these people are sharing life together. See, think about it from this perspective. These are people who literally saw Jesus on the cross. Like they, they, they knew of his death on the cross, but they are with him after the resurrection. And literally that had such an impact on them. The, the fruit of that was, man, stuff in my life doesn't matter. Jesus is alive. So because the resurrection is true, stuff doesn't matter. That was their response. And that should be the same response for us. Because the resurrection is true, stuff doesn't matter. Because the resurrection is true, a new big house doesn't matter. Because the resurrection is true, new gadgets don't matter. Because the resurrection is true, the fanciest car doesn't matter. The Bible tells us that this life is a vapor and that Jesus is going to come back that second advent and he's going to transform this world and we're going to behold glory forever. And that's why Jesus in his own words says, in light of all of that, why in the world would you store up treasures on this earth? Because the resurrection is true, church, it changes how we as believers view possessions. Now we give generously. Now our giving is significant because the resurrection is true. And on the flip side of that, our hoarding, our accumulating, our piling up is foolish because the resurrection is true. And this truth is beaten to their heads because Jesus really is alive. They just saw him. And because they just saw him, they, they now know that their, their real need, separation from God, has been solved because Jesus is alive. And so now they begin to take care of each other. So one of the byproducts of the empowering of the Holy Spirit, last week we said, people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, they, they will speak boldly. But what we see this week as well, people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, they will share boldly. They will share boldly. So may God make us a people known for gospel-saturated generosity. So look, it says, great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. So when you understand the gospel, you begin to understand grace more and more. You begin to wrap your mind around who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And the byproduct of is, is generosity, that literally your heart is freed from possessions, and the more you tighten to the love of people, you don't love possessions like you love people. No, you use your possessions to love people. You use your possessions to bless people. And that's what's happening here. The heart is loosened to a love of money and it's tightened to a love of people when you get grace. So on the flip side of that, I, I have to ask us for, for people who don't give, for people who are not generous, who, who call themselves Christians, I think you have to wrestle with, do you understand the gospel? In light of this passage, those who, who come and don't give, those who are just come as consumers and takers, in light of this passage, do you understand the gospel? In light of Jesus' own words that your heart gets put on display by your actions. Literally, your actions, they, they show the condition of your heart, Jesus says. So may this picture of generosity in Acts 4, 32 through 37, may it be said of us that we are a generous 
people. And maybe you're here and you hear that and you go, you don't know me. I just, I don't have much money. I don't have much resources. You missed the point. It's not about how much money and resources you have. It's how we are viewing it. Do we view it that, that it belongs to God and we're using it for his glory? And more than money, our time. We say all the time, the time is one of the greatest commodities in our culture. Are we generous with our time? Are we generous with our love? Are we looking for ways to be generous? That's what the Holy Spirit does. He enables generosity and he enables belief. Now, Luke gives two very uh, different pictures at this point of the Holy Spirit at work. He tells us two stories. Both stories are very helpful. One story is instructive. One story is a warning. And first, we're told the story of Barnabas, who exemplifies what we just talked about, that the Holy Spirit is at work in his life through believing the gospel, the resurrection has captured his heart, and that leads to a life of generosity and serving others. And so all throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see a lot of Barnabas. Some 23 times he's going to be mentioned and we're going to told, be told about him. Uh, verse 36 and 37. It says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So again, he's an example of everything that Luke was telling us has been happening in the church. Now, really just a side note, I want to just point out that, that this guy, his name is Joseph, but they've nicknamed him Barnabas because Barnabas means encourager. And just as a side note, I just want to say to us, what, not necessarily a nickname, but what, what word are you, do you embody? Like we have some people in this church who, who you, you are like Barnabas, you are encourager. And we have some other people who you lean more the other side, more discourager. And I, I pray, I pray that we'd be a church made up of people like Barnabas, that we, we wouldn't be quick to knock each other down, but we would be quick to pick each other up, that we'd be quick to be encouragers, that we would be quick to speak life over one another. I pray that we would be like Barnabas in many ways. And so Luke is saying here, here's a picture of someone who's doing what I just told you was happening. He sold his field. He brought the money to the apostles' feet to give to anyone who is in need. Now we begin chapter five, and it begins with this word, but. And so we see these two stories are linked grammatically. Like they, there's a comparison. Like Luke is saying, hey, here's someone who's doing it, Barnabas, but here's somebody who's not. In other words, be like Barnabas. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira. So they too had a field. They too sold the field. They too took the money and put it at the apostles' feet, but they kept some back. And we're gonna see how God deals with it. The third thing about the Holy Spirit that we see in this passage is that the Holy Spirit convicts and judges sin. The Holy Spirit convicts and judges sin. Look at verse nine. Verse nine says, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, look quickly at John chapter 16. This could be on the screen. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. He's telling the disciples he's gonna send the Holy Spirit. And then he gives a description of what the Holy Spirit does. Here's what he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, here's what he does. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Jesus is saying, look, the, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to be your helper. But one of the things he's going to do, he is going to convict and to judge sin. Um, earlier this week, uh, my son Malachi and I, we were talking about this story. I was telling him the story of Ananias 
and Sapphira, this couple who, who brought this offering uh, to the Lord, and, and basically they died in church. And I was telling him what happened and how kind of they just struck down like they died. And his eyes got real big, like hardly being able to believe this. And see, I think that oftentimes I think there's a myth that there's this Old Testament God who is violent, who is angry, who is mean, who's killing people. And then somehow you just flip one page over and you're in the New Testament. Now we have a new God and he comes in the form of the baby in the manger and he, he's Jesus and he's meek and he's mild and he loves everybody and he invites all these kids to sit on his lap. But what we see here is that, that God is the same, right? We serve the same God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament is the God today. Hebrews tells us that he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And here we see our God. We see God, the Holy Spirit, convicting Ananias and Sapphira of sin. That's what he does. And specifically, he convicts them of three sins. I want to run through this part very quickly. Three sins in this passage that he convicts them of. The first one is he convicts them that they loved money. He convicted them of the sin of loving money. I ask us, church, how much do we love money? Like, like when you look at your bank account, when you look at your retirement account, when you start seeing those numbers rise, do you feel more security? When you get some type of bonus check or increase, what's the first thought? Like, is your first thought, God, thank you for this increase. How can I use this for your kingdom? How can I use this to serve others? Or is your first thought, man, what gadget can I buy? What trip can I take? You might love money. Check your heart. Second sin they were convicted of is that they lo- the love of man's approval. See, this wasn't a communistic society. There was, no, there was no decree that everyone in the church must take all their land and sell it and give the money to the church. That wasn't a thing. These people were willingly selling their land. Barnabas, Ananias, and Sapphira. They took their land willingly. They sold it. They gave the money to the apostles to be distributed This wasn't a communistic society, nor was there any type of order on how much they were to give of that sale. So so they could have sold their property and they could have taken a portion. They could have taken a tithe, 10%. And they could have taken that to the church leaders and said, hey, we sold our land. Here's a tithe. Here's, Here's a blessing. And they would say, man, great, praise God, blessing. But that's not what they did. They wanted to look like Barnabas. And so they too sold their land. But for whatever reason, they held some of that money back, maybe for security, maybe for possessions they wanted to buy. And they go before the church leaders and they say, hey, just like Barnabas, we too, we sold our land. Hey, here's everything we've got. And they were wanting a pat on the back. They were wanting those church leaders to say, wow, you guys are so generous. You guys are so great. You guys are amazing Christians. You guys are awesome. And we do the same thing. How often do we position ourselves in a way to just make ourselves look a little bit better in the eyes of others? How often do we position ourselves where somebody sees our serving or sees our giving or they see our exuberance in worship or how often do we, do we maybe just say something in a conversation just kind of has other people thinking a little bit higher of ourselves? We do the same thing. So check your heart. Are you seeking the love and the approval of others? Because this is what Ananias and Sapphira, this is what they were convicted of, one of the sins. The last one is this. They were convicted and judged that they diminished the truth. They lied. They lied to Peter, saying, hey, this is all the money. It wasn't the truth. And look, where the love of money and the approval of man arises in your life, the truth is diminished. You can't have both. And Ananias and Sapphira, they saw this firsthand. Where the love of money and the approval of man arose in their life, Truth is diminished, and that's the same in our life. So here's what we see. The Holy Spirit enables generosity 
The Holy Spirit enables belief. The Holy Spirit convicts and judges sin. And the last thing is this, the Holy, we sin first against the Holy Spirit. We sin first against the Holy Spirit. Look at verse three. Verse three, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And look at the end of verse four. It says, you have not lied to man. You have lied to God. You see, Peter, Peter has had the wisdom here to look at Ananias and say, Ananias, you're not lying to me right now. You're lying to God. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. And here's how this plays out for us. You have an affair with a coworker. You're not first sinning against your spouse. You are first and foremost sinning against God Almighty. You do unethical things at work. You're not sinning first first against your boss or the company. You are sinning first and foremost against God. You, you lie to your friends at church to just kind of make yourself look a little bit better and tell about all the spiritual disciplines and habits that you have. You, you don't lie and sin first to them. No, you are, you are lying. You are sinning first and foremost to God. Look, sin is serious, but it's not necessarily serious because of the sin that you do. Sin is serious because of who it is against. Look, if, if your view of God is off, if you think that you are sinning against people first, we sin first and foremost against God. And God is not just a Santa Claus in the sky dropping gifts on his people. God is holy and he will not be mocked. God is holy, church. He is holy. He is the creator. He is the only righteous this is our God and our sin is against him. And that's why it took such an extravagant gift to pay for it, his son, Jesus. We sin first against God. A commentary that I studied this week, it summarizes the story of Ananias and Sapphira with one sentence. Here's what it says. It says, a dangerous holiness is God's response to a determined hypocrisy. A dangerous holiness is God's response to a determined hypocrisy hypocrisy. Church, we need to check your heart because we are all guilty of hypocrisy, right? We are all guilty of, at times, our actions, they don't match our profession. But Ananias and Sapphira, they knew they were being hypocrites. This was premeditated. And when we discover hypocrisy in our life, the call of a Christian is repentance. But that's not what they did. They were living in hypocrisy. They were, they were knowingly being hypocritical, and so we see these two ways of living in this passage. We see Barnabas and we see Ananias and Sapphira. Two ways of living, two ways of giving. We see the Holy Spirit at work in both stories, but two very different endings to the stories. One of the stories, again, is instructive and one is a warning. So I, I want to end this morning just by asking us a couple questions. And in light of what we just saw in Ananias and Sapphira, these people who who is so important to them to put this front up to other believers and to the church and to the leaders that they looked good. I want to ask us a couple questions. First of all is this, what do we believe about Christianity? Like, like what do you believe? What do you believe it, it means to truly be a follower of Christ? Like, do you believe that being a Christian is just checking boxes? Do you think that being a Christian is just checking some boxes so you can say you did that? Do you think it means, you know, serving here, giving there? Do you think it, it means just, you know, looking good on the outside so that you can say, I'm a Christian? 
Or do you believe that the Christian life is a life of process? That you don't come to God, that he meets you where you are, right? That that's the gospel. The gospel tells us, Ephesians, that we were dead in our sin and in our deadness, God comes to us and he breathes life over us, right? That God comes to us and yet the bent of our heart, the bent of our life is to always make it seem like everything is so good to cover ourselves up and we become just professional hypocrites. And think about the first two human beings on this planet, Adam and Eve. And think about after the very first sin, what did they do? They covered themselves up, right? They went and they got leaves and they tried to cover themselves up. But what did our God do? He knew their sin. He knew what they had done. He goes to them. And what does he do? He brings clothes. He provides a covering. And that's a picture of the gospel, right? That we all, we fall short and we try to cover ourselves up. We try to do it on our own and it's not enough. And so God, in his extravagant love for us, that while we were yet sinning, he sends his son Christ and he dies. And he goes to the cross and he's the perfect sacrifice so that he can be our true covering. And so why, why do we pretend? Why do we constantly try to cover ourselves with these fake leaves? Do you believe that the Christian life is one of process? That it's truly okay to not be okay. Like Holly said, you walk in here and maybe it's hard to sing, you are good this morning. Like that's okay. That is okay. But do you believe that? Because our tendency is to just put this wall up and say everything's good, I'm good. No, the process of sanctification is where the Holy Spirit of God is at work in our life. And therefore, you don't have to grab onto these Christian acts and these religious things and hide behind them. That's hypocrisy. Like, what do you believe saves you? Just kind of a fake it till you make it, pretending? Or do you believe the Holy Spirit of God at work in your life? The next question I just ask is, who's walking with you in life? Who is walking with you? Who knows you? Who is in the trenches with you? Because we see here this community, this church. Verse 32, it says, they were of one heart. They were of one soul. That this wasn't just a trivial community, people getting together in a supper club. This wasn't people just getting together for snacks and talking about sports. This was a tight, close community of one heart, one soul. They were living life together. They were sharing. They were in the trenches. They knew each other's struggles and weaknesses. So who is in the trenches with you? Maybe you say, yeah, you know, it's hard. I don't know how to get plugged in. Listen, I hear all that, but at the end of the day, you have to be intentional with your faith, with your walk with the Lord. So even just this fall, the church provides all kinds of mechanisms to get connected. So beyond a Sunday morning service, we have men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, men's events, women's events, a Wednesday night prayer service, student ministry, all these different avenues to meet, meet other people so that people can get in the trenches with you. But it takes an intentionally, intentionality on your behalf. If you've heard us talk about the new year, how we're gonna get in groups and homes And there's going to be accountability to how we are walking as disciples of Christ. But even so, church, it takes an intentionality on your behalf. I don't have to tell you that there are lots of comforts and luxuries in North Texas. And let's call them what they are, distractions. Where is the time for this one heart, one soul community? Because it's so important because this is what the Holy Spirit uses to push us towards his sanctification. Look, being private in our faith is not helpful. 
Do you have people in your life who are pushing you towards the work of the Holy Spirit? This is not a private faith. It's a personal faith, but it's not a private faith. And I don't know about you, but I'm sick of seeing social media posts where, hey, everything's great in everybody's life and, and you see, you know, everything's perfect. And then, you know, behind closed doors, man, their life is a mess. It's a train wreck. Like, why do we feel like we have to put this facade up that everything is great? One of the things that just grieves us as pastors is from time to time, we come across a marriage that is just seemingly falling apart. Like, we know that doesn't happen. We know that a marriage doesn't fall apart overnight. And yet one Facebook post is, hey, marriage is great, we're in love. The next day, signing divorce papers. How is that possible? It's because we feel this need to hide behind this wall that we have a perfect marriage, we have a perfect life. Everything is great. We lean towards hypocrisy and therefore we lean against the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And what we see in this early church over and over again is we see the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Listen, church, without the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, we have nothing. So if you just pretend that you're growing, you're not going to grow. If you just pretend that you you don't have a lust or a pornography issue, you're not going to conquer that thing because you're not going to wrestle through it and see victory in that area in your life. If you just pretend that everything's great with your kids and they have no issues, I hope that works out for you, but typically it doesn't. If you pretend that you don't have an addiction, bring that thing into the light. Wrestle through it with others. Look, the the Spirit of God wants to say to us today, do you have an issue? And the answer for every single one of us is yes, I have an issue. And here's what Jesus says, Acts 1. He says, I will send the helper to you. That's who he is. That's what he does. But our tendency is to push away from him and say, no, we're fine. We're good. We've got it all together. Church, we want a culture here at the Parks Church culture of honesty, a culture of truth where you can walk in and say, you know what? I'm not good. And your brothers and sisters wrap their arms around you and say, it's okay. We got you. We're going to walk this with you. We want to make sure that you don't stay there. So look, what did this early church need that we also need? The very last verse, it says this, in great fear came upon the whole church. What do we need? A healthy fear of the Lord. We studied Proverbs this summer, Proverbs 1. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Are you living your life in a way where you stand in awe of God and his majesty and his power and his might? Or are you living your life in a way where it's honestly kind of arrogant to just say, no, I'm in control. I've earned all this. All this is because of me. I'm so great. The Bible would say that is unwise. We are to live our life in a way where we are in awe of him. What did the early church need? that we need gospel application. You, saw, you see these people whose hearts were captured by the resurrection, captured by the gospel. Why? It, it addresses every issue that we talked about today. The gospel frees us from addictions to self. The gospel frees us from addictions to stuff. The gospel frees us from pretending. The gospel frees us from wanting praise from others. The gospel frees us from wanting to lie, steal, and deceive. The gospel makes us honest. The gospel makes us generous. The gospel sets our, our minds on the glory that is to be revealed. I pray the gospel at the Parks Church would move from here to here, that it would get deep in our hearts, church, that we would be captured by that. 
What did this early church need that we need? The last thing, repentance. Repentance. That we would repent from these facades that we put up, that we would repent from the turning towards hypocrisy and and acting like everything is okay, that we would knock down the, the facades and the veneer in our life and that we would turn towards the working of the Holy Spirit. Martin Luther says that the Christian life is a, just a steady life of repentance, just constantly repenting. So that every time that we discover hypocrisy in our life, that we would turn towards repentance. So church, I pray today that we would be a people so empowered by the Holy Spirit that the, that the outcome of that would just be gospel-saturated generosity living with our eyes open, serving one another, that we'd be people walking in truth and honesty with one another. We're gonna take just a couple minutes. We're gonna reflect on the word of the Lord. So take a few moments, examine your heart, and we're gonna worship together before we leave. Father, we thank you for your word. God, your word that is alive, that is active, that that corrects us. God, that shapes us into who you desire us to be. So Lord, I pray you would seal this word deep in our heart. Holy Spirit, would you show us areas in our life that are not consistent with who you are, with what you desire for us. Show us areas that that we're hiding behind fakeness and pretending and hypocrisy. Holy Spirit, work in our lives. Empower us as your people. Go with us. In your name we pray. Amen.